Good morning, my name is Tolu, and we'll be studying the Word together today by God's grace. We will be in Psalm 51. Uh, if you need a Bible, please get one from one of the gentlemen walking down the aisle. And the title of the sermon is Everyday Life, Brokenness and Intimacy with God. We'll also be sharing some slides and I'll be walking through some of that as well. So hopefully I'm not blocking that too much. Can, are you guys good? Is it good? Okay. Hopefully I'm not blocking. Um, so again, we'll be in Psalm 51. Um, I think about a month ago we walked through Psalm 51 from verse 1 to 9. So today we will go through uh, verses 10 to 19 to wrap that up. So I'll start off by giving us a context of Psalm 51. Uh, we'll talk about, um, how would I put it? Talk about a context, talk about a recap from last summer, and then we'll jump into the text for today. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but before we start, let's pray, please. Father, thank you for today, for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for your love for us, God. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Because as we wrestle with sin, we do need that hope to, to know that you are always there to receive us whenever we come to you. And because on this side of eternity, there would always be that brokenness, that hurt, the pain. We are both victims and victimizers in this drama that we call life. And so we need you, God, to come convict our hearts. We pray today that your word will be like a hammer that breaks the hardened rock of our heart. It will be like fire that melts our heart. So that your word can penetrate deep into us. So that you can show us your love. And we can come to trust in you and to rest in you. We pray God today for a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That as we study these passages together our hearts will be open to you. Be open to receiving whatever you have. And that we will respond to that with joyful Gratefulness, God. And so God, come teach us. Come walk us through this text, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we'll be in Psalm 51 from verses 10 to 19. We'll get to the text in a bit. Um, but I wanted to start out by saying in our everyday lives, right, we wrestle with sin. Um, and that leads to this brokenness. And when I say brokenness, what I mean is the state or the condition of our hearts where we understand how little we deserve and how much we owe to God and how merciful God is to us. So we are always in this place of dependence upon him. So what I'm praying and I'm hoping for is as we walk through the text today, um, we will, while I will not specifically deal with brokenness and intimacy with God, I am hoping that the text will surface those themes and we'll be repeating some of those themes as we walk through it. So let me give a brief uh, context to Psalm 51, just in case you're not familiar. So Psalm 51 was written by David, I believe. Um, at this point, David is king over Israel, right? He's had a a really, how would I put it, a heroic past, right? Defeating Goliath, winning battles upon battles. He's now king. He sort of ushered in this golden age uh, to Israel, right? And he's quite frankly the greatest king Israel has seen, save for Christ, right? He's quite frankly that person. Um, however, he commits adultery by sleeping with a married woman. And actually the woman's name is Bathsheba. She's married to a guy by the name Uriah the Hittite. 
who happens to be one of his 30 strongest men. So sometimes in his past, before he was king, he was a fugitive running away from Saul, his predecessor that wanted to kill him. Um, and he had a band of guys that came around him. Initially, I think about 600 of them. Uh, and out of those, there were a certain class of warriors that were called his 30 strongest men. And Uriah the Hittite happened to be one of them. So Uriah is at this point fighting a battle. There's a war going on. David is back in Israel. He sleeps with Bathsheba, tries to cover it up. Um, sort of calls back Uriah, tries to make him to go sleep with his wife. Uriah doesn't do that. He eventually conspires to murder Uriah. He kills him. And pretty much, David pretty much moves on. He just moves on, right? He marries Bathsheba after the time of mourning and, you know, as a way to cover up what happened, right? And basically, life sort of moves on. So Nathan confronts David. Uh, Nathan is a prophet. Uh, by God's grace, David is convicted. He repents, and out of that comes Psalm 51. So that's the context. Excuse me. <clears throat> One thing I do want to point out, though, is when you look at David, right, very few people come to his level of, I would say, success or acclaim, both materially and spiritually in terms of his relationship with God. Right? He authors a number of Psalms, and he's quite prolific. Right? You, you could see the depth of his relationship with God. But part of what I want to point out there is, for as great as David is, he did commit a string of just heinous sins, right, to cover up basically his selfish desire, right? And the point there is none of us are above sinning, right? We wrestle with it every day. And sometimes we think, oh, it's just a small sin, you know, I'm telling a lie here or there, but no, right? There, there is a sin pattern in our lives that can be crippling sometimes. So the point is this. Like John Owen said, let us be killing sin, or sin will be killing us, right? And we do have Christ to rely on for that, and we get more into that. So for the passage today, please, my hope is that you would open your heart and see this text that it's about me and you, right? It's not about your friend. It's not about your spouse. It's not about your co-worker. It's not about your political opponent. This is about me and you. The passage today is about me and you. So let's open our hearts as we dive into it. <clears throat> so like I said, uh, we talked about Psalm 51 from verse 1 to 9 last time. And so I want to give a brief recap of that. Um, and the first thing I want to say is sin is a rejection of God at the very core of it. It's not just a violation of ethics and moral code. It's a rejection of God. It's a sin is me saying, God, you're not enough or what you offer is not enough. And so I'm going to find another way. And so that, that's the first thing I want us to, to see. It, it's, sin comes out of our thirst for self-sovereignty, that self-centeredness. We, we want life to revolve around us, right? And then sin also seems to carry with it this force field of denial, right? And, and that's why it's so hard to, to just own up to your sin and admit it, because there's this natural force field of denial there, right? And, and for sin to do its evil work, it has to dress up in a costume. It's kind of like it has to fool you, right, for, for sin to do its evil work. So um, let, let me read something here by Paul Tripp where he says, Sin lives in a costume. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Right? Impatient yelling wears the costume of a zeal for truth. Right? Lost, immoral lost can often masquerade itself as love for beauty. 
Uh, and then gossip does this evil work by expressing itself as a, a, a true concern for you. Right? That, that's sort of how gossip works at times. And then a, a craving for power and control. Where's this mask of biblical wisdom and truth? And, and that's how sin operates. Right? And, and we need to be reflecting on this and seeing our heart. So again, we talked about the fact that we are powerless against sin. We're not just powerless. Uh, we are helpless. And quite frankly, we are hopeless against sin. And our only hope lies in Christ. And so we talked about three action items, which are listed up there, um, in terms of what do we do? Well, how does that impact us, right? And the first thing is that we have to have this posture of awareness of our sins. Right? It comes from understanding that we all have a depraved heart. When Jeremiah 17, 9 says, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can cure it? It's talking about our hearts. Right? So there has to be a posture of an awareness of our sins. Basically, you have to understand that you're not the stuff of legend. Like you're pretty good, but, you know. Right? Um, the second thing is, by the grace of God, we hope to come to this place where we own and acknowledge our sins. Right? Where we can face them and actually own them. Right? And the reason we can own our sins is because of the love of Christ. Because we know that he will not reject us. We can be settled in that. And so no matter what we do, no matter how horrifying our sins may be, we have Christ who accepts us if we come to him. Right, so we, we should be owning our sins. And then lastly, an appeal to mercy. Right, so an appeal to God. Confession, repentance. So those are the three main action items from the last time. Right? So that's a recap. All right, let me move quickly. So let's get into this, today's text. So Psalm 51. Uh, we're mainly going to focus on verses 10 to 19, but I'm going to go through the whole text. Right. Um, so let's start. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sins, they are ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sins and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You delight in truth in the inward man, and so thou wilt teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. So we get to verse 10, which is where we'll pick up today. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right or a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my 
mouth and my lips will declare your praises. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will bring it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar. So like I said, today we will be looking at from verses 10 to 19, and the title is Everyday Life, Brokenness and Intimacy with God. As we wrestle with sin, there is always an opportunity to press deeper into our brokenness. And what I mean by that is an opportunity to recognize that we need Christ. We are in need of a Savior. And through that opportunity comes another opportunity to pursue intimacy with God. Right, so as we go through the text, I want you to always be looking at that place, being in that state of brokenness, and then the opportunity to pursue deeper intimacy with God. Right, so perhaps in starting out, I, I should say that, actually before that, I, I should say that uh, we will be covering about three or four themes today. Again, we'll have some slides for some of them. I hope at the end of the sermon we have some time to do a brief meditation exercise that we'll put up there. Uh, so hopefully we get to that. So the first thing we'll be looking at today is a cry for deliverance. Right. So when you look at Psalm 51 verses 1 to 9, it basically focuses on the theme of confession and forgiveness. It's David apologizing, so to say, seeking forgiveness. But, but verses 10 to 19 mark a shift where he's crying for deliverance. There is this longing for more. It's not just that he wants to say, God, I'm sorry about what I did. It's that he wants deliverance from sin, from himself, so that he can have this intimate relationship with God. Right. And so one thing I should say is whenever we look at sin, whenever we look at sin, um, we should be looking at it at two levels, right, whenever we sin. So what I mean is this. Um, the first level is the external manifestation, physical act of the sin. I'm angry, so I yell at you, right? Or, or you see my face change or I frown or whatever, right? That's one level. The second level, the most important level, though, is the heart, right? The, the heart that is okay with the fact that I yell at you, or I hurt you, or I punch you, or what have you, right? So there should always be those two levels to sin. And so the core of our sin is the heart. It's the, the act is bad, yes, but it's the heart behind it. So let me give an example. If I were to ask everyone in here, who is a liar in here? I'm sure nobody will raise up their hands, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though we all lie, including me. Right? But nobody would say, oh, yeah, I'm a liar, right? <laughs> So, so no one would say that, but what's a lie or what makes us a liar? Right? So if I define a liar as this, that a liar is not just someone who lies, but someone who would lie given the right condition. That makes all of us liars, essentially. Right? And so it's always the heart. What makes sin, sin is the heart. Right? What, makes, what makes us a liar is the heart behind it. Right? And, and so you see David recognizing this theme. He understands that sin is not just a mistake. 
It's not just, oh, I just did that, you know, that's out of character. Right? And it's not just enough to just say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that, I'm moving. Right? He understands that there is something more to that. This is why verses 10 to 12, and it's up there, I want you to see that there are certain words there that point to the fact that he understands that sin is more than just an act. So if, if we read those texts, it says, create in me a new heart or a clean heart. Right? And renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. So if you look at some of the keywords there, create. Right? Renew. Right spirit. Clean heart. Your presence. Holy Spirit. Restore. Joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. What it's pointing at is David understands that there is a seriousness to sin. He understands that sin is just not in a mistake I made. There is a pervasiveness to sin. And so he understands that it's not just okay, for example, if, if I blow up regularly. Right. And so if I get angry and I just say, oh, I'm sorry, and I just move on. I don't understand the seriousness of that, especially when that is a theme with me. See, I'm not looking at the heart behind that. I don't know if you guys use this language, but, but me and my friends, we do in the sense of, we talk about we have pet sins. You know, sins that you're like, yeah, God understands. Right? But when I look at it, it's, it's almost kind of like the image that comes to mind. It's kind of like I'm petting like this very hungry wolf or dragon. Right? I'm just like, ah, oh, you look so cute. And you know, the dragon or the wolf is kind of smiling at me, sort of licking his lips, flashing this perfect golden set of canines. Right? And just sort of laughing. The question then is, who is the pet? Right? I'm the pet. And sometimes that's how we treat sin. Now, sometimes we look at it like, oh, I'm just telling a lie. Right? But it's the heart behind that. Right? It's the heart that says, yeah, it's okay to tell a lie so that I preserve my reputation. See, that same heart will do more dastardly things in the right situation. So we are in need of deliverance. Right, that's the point I'm trying to make with this point, right? In the occasion of our sins, we should always see that we are in need of deliverance. Like sin is more than just an outlier act. There's a pervasiveness to it. The effect of sin on us is total in the sense that it affects every area of life. Right? From the emotional to the physical, the spiritual, what have you. Right? So when David asks that God creates in him a new heart, he's asking for a miracle. The word creates there actually is usually attributed to God. And it means that there is a change, a renewal, right? bringing order into chaos. It's kind of like creation language that he's using here. Right? And then the word spirit in verse 10, 11, and 12. In verse 11, it's clearly your Holy Spirit. But where he talks about uh, renew a right or a steadfast spirit, in me, or where he talks about uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, traditionally, we, we understand that as that's talking about us, right? Because the core of who we are is our heart, our spirit. But, but in reading some commentary, there is legitimate argument, actually, that it might be referring to the spirit of God, which shows our dire need, which shows that we are more in need of him. And so the point I want you to see here again is our only hope lies with God. 
If sin is a rejection of God, which means I'm truly not seeing God as he is, then the only way I can have that intimate relationship with God is by beholding his face, is by seeing him as he is. Hence why David will say, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? He understands that what empowers you to fight against sin is beholding God, seeing the face of God continually. Right? Um, another point I want to make here is verse 13 where it talks about, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When God delivers us, from sin, or at least when he highlights to us our need and we're struggling with sin and we see his mercy and his grace and his delivering us. You see, we begin to live for more than ourselves. When we understand the depravity of our souls, the hopelessness of our condition, the beauty of the never-ending love of Christ. And when we see how Christ defeated sin, nailing it to the cross, nailing all of our sins to the cross, giving us his righteousness. When we grasp this truth, right, and when we are reminded of this truth, the natural instinct is to point other people there. Right? It's what flows out of you. Right? It's part of why we are in community. Right? So our struggles can be a rich fountain of encouragement to other people. I'm sure you've all seen this. Right? Where the, the best teachers sometimes for a particular area in life are those that have gone through that area and have failed. Right? Because out of that then comes this possibility of testifying to the goodness of God. So again, the first point here is we need deliverance from sin. And as God delivers us, we naturally point others to him. Right? And so in the occasion of our sins, when we wrestle with sin, when we come to that point where we've sinned, it becomes an opportunity. For us to cry out for deliverance. An opportunity for us to see our brokenness and then press deeper into God. Second point I want to make here or that I want to touch on is the weight of sin. Right. It's When you look at verse 14, it's almost like David is re, almost like re-recognizing the enormity of a sin. When he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. Right, blood guiltiness there is actually translated bloods with plural. I don't know what that means, but but basically the point there is that the guilt is simply too much. That's the weight of sin that silences him. And so he's crying out to God for deliverance. That's why he says, Oh God, oh God of my salvation, the God who delivers him. Right, and so sometimes when the weight of sin settles on us. There is a natural tendency to turn away from God and say, you know, what? I'm not good enough, which is true. Right. But, but what I want you to do is what David is doing is to turn him back to God because he loves you. So there, there are times where your spiritual growth can be frustratingly slow. And like how many times are we going to wrestle with the same thing? Right. But let that always be an opportunity. To turn you back to God. Always. Right? This is why Christ will say, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I came to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Right? So there are times when the weight of sin presses us down. 
And I'll give an example. Uh, I think it was last week. I was taking a walk in the evening. Um, and I was just considering sin. As I was thinking of this passage. <laughs> considering my own sin. Sin patterns in my life. And at some point, I was sort of slumped on the wall. I didn't even know how I got there. But I was tired. I'm just like, God, I'm tired. I shouldn't even be teaching. I'm like, I'm tired. Like, how do we get beyond these things? And, and in the midst of that, I was reminded of those scriptures that I talked about. That Christ didn't come to save the healthy, but the sick. He came to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And I was reminded of that. I'm like, thank you, God. Thank you. Now, in a warped sense in my mind, when I think of David, I'm like, ah, he killed someone. I haven't gotten to that stage. Like, like there is hope for me. <laughs> it's not like that. But I'm just saying, that, that shows me, God is always willing to receive us. Right? So when the weight of sin settles on us, please let us turn back to God. See, so what David didn't have, that we have, and what he's sort of expressing through the psalm, is what we have, the cross. So we have tangible evidence of God's love for us. We have this visceral evidence of the extent to which Christ went for us. We have the crucified king on the cross. You see, yes, we have sinned and the penalty is eternal separation from God. Hell. And by ourselves, we have no hope and we are completely helpless. Yet Christ, in his unwavering love for us, died for us while we were yet sinners. And so that's what I want you to always be playing in your mind as you grapple with sin. Right? When the weight of sin descends, right, to turn to God, not to turn away from him. Right? So there's a quote I want to read from Paul Tripp. Yes. Um, and you know, just follow along. And, and this is the, the point of this is I want us to see that when sin comes and the weight comes, we can always turn to God and there is great joy to be had because of what Christ has done. So let me read this. And this is Paul Tripp speaking. He says, it should be in our minds. He's talking about the sacrifice of Christ. It should flood our hearts. It should be constantly on our lips. We have been redeemed. Chosen out of the mass of humanity. Forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus. Accepted into the family of God. Into God's family. The Holy Spirit now living inside of us, God working to empower us against and to deliver us from sin. The great paradigmatic truths of biblical narrative now open to us. The mutual ministry fellowship of the body of Christ, our regular experience, and a guaranteed future in God's presence, free from sin and struggle. We've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. We have been redeemed. The scope and the bread of it should boggle our minds. Right, so even though we sin and we wrestle with sin, there is hope in Christ. Right, this is not, like I said, this is not to minimize our sin, which is why I started out with that cry for deliverance. Right, that cry for restoration, for the inward renewal. And yet we can always depend on what Christ has done on the cross. Right. The third point I want to face here is uh, true repentance this is from verse 16 to 19 so repentance at its core is a turning to god which necessarily implies a turning away from other things but the order is important 
It is first a turning to God. And as you turn to God, the allure of sin fades away into nothingness, right? Over time, obviously, right? So repentance is first a turning to God. Earlier on, I mentioned that when we confront our sins, we should be confronting it at two levels, right? The first, which is the physical act of sin itself. And then the second, which is the heart behind sin, the heart that makes it okay. You see, if you are going to be horrified by sin, you should be horrified by the heart that is okay with sin. And when I say if you're going to be horrified by sin, I mean your sins, not other people's sins. Right? So confronting the heart behind sin is where true repentance starts. You see, if sin is a refusal, it's a rejection of God, which is a refusal to let God be God, repentance is letting God be God. And so you see, in, in the Old Testament, God has instituted this system of animal sacrifices for atonement of sin. But it was meant to be a stopgap, pointing to the person of Christ. And you see that it was never enough because they had to do it every day, right? Which tells you it was never enough. And David realizes this, or he's at least hinting at this when he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He's coming to terms with the reality that God desires so much more than the outward act of repentance or apology. Especially when the heart is devoid of the right internal state. Right. And we see echoes of this throughout scripture. Right. Cain and Abel, when they presented an offering before God, what God was after was their heart. When God rebuked Cain, it was about his heart. Right. Uh, there's a scripture here in Deuteronomy 36 that speaks of circumcision. And I want you to highlight what God is after here. This is Moses talking. He says, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. So even though circumcision was more of a physical outside act, what God was after was the heart. Right? In First Samuel 15, when Samuel was rebuking David's predecessor, Saul, he says this. I think this is verse 22. He says, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of Ram. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, what should have empowered the ritual sacrifices is the inward reality from which they flow. Right? And so David understands that it's not just as simple as, oh, let me just make some sacrifices and, and then I'm good. Right? He, he understands the seriousness of sin. He said, without the right heart, the sacrifice and the offerings, they mean nothing. Next to nothing, honestly. And so what does this mean for me and you? First thing I want to highlight is what God is after is your heart. Right? God is not as much after your career or your wealth or all those things. Right? God is not as much impressed with your good or noble deeds, the fact that you serve in church. Right? Like that's all great. But what God is after is your heart. When your heart is aligned with him, he is most pleased. When your heart has been transformed into Christ likeness, he is most joyous. Right? This is what God is after, your heart. Secondly, our confidence 
is in the fact that God in his mercy would accept a broken and a contrite heart. Now, what, what does it mean to have a broken and a contrite heart? It speaks of a heart that understands how little it deserves and how much it owes and how merciful God has been. Right? The one with a broken heart understands its need for Christ. Right? There is a longing that I cannot save myself. I need help. So one commentator puts it like this. The sacrifice that God demands, this is of all of us, is a sacrifice of man's self-will and self-importance. In other words, it is the surrender of man's own self to God. So from all of that, we should see that we are called to total dependence upon God. What God is after is your heart. Right? It's not enough for me to say, oh yeah, you know, I serve at Mercy Hill, I teach the kids, I teach the church, but I'm doing all of that so that people can see me. Right? It's not. So the last two verses, because this third point talks about um, true repentance. The, the last two verses, which talks about do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Right? And then you will delight in right sacrifices and bond offerings and whole bond offerings. Then booze will be offered on your altar. Those last two verses were probably added, probably, I'm not sure. Probably added sometimes after uh, the exile and restoration, meaning the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. So sometimes between captivity when Nebuchadnezzar came and carted everybody away um, to the rebuilding of the walls in Nehemiah. And they were likely added as a way to make David's personal confession and plea for restoration sort of appropriated into a corporate experience for the nation of Israel. Right. And I want to point out a couple of things there. First of all, there is, you see again that appeal to God's mercy, that dependence on God. That's why he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Or another translation would say, in your gracious will. There is a throwing of themselves at the mercy of God, right? At the feet of God, so to say. Now, secondly, uh, those two verses sort of reinforce what we've talked about in terms of God being after the heart. That's why he talks about right sacrifices. Right. What God is after is your heart. And then implicitly, I, I believe this verse is also heightening the importance of communal living, which is part of what we do when we gather here together. Right. Uh, the, this way of being together, encouraging one another, right? sharing experiences and story. And we as a people, and this is also what we do in home groups. Uh, and I, if you are not a part of home group, I will strongly uh, suggest that. Um, where as a people we, we continue to wrestle with this everyday brokenness and this pursuit of intimacy with God. And so you see this theme there. And so lastly, I want to talk about an invitation. An invitation that I believe we see in Psalm 51 and we also see in all of Scripture. So, so far we talked about there is a cry for deliverance. Talked about the weight of sin. Right? Then we talked about what true repentance looks like. And, and so as we confront our sins, I'm hoping we see our need for deliverance. Right? I'm hoping we see that we, we don't just seek forgiveness or say sorry or apologize, but that we understand or we look at the heart behind our sins and we tackle that, we wrestle with that. Right? I pray that we are set free to be a light unto others. 
So that as God works on us and restores us, we naturally point others to him. Even by the way we live. Right? Most importantly, by that. And when the weight of sin brings despair and this debilitating frustration, I pray we recall the sacrifice of Christ and the experience of the sweetness of his grace. And I pray that leads us to true repentance. Now, let me talk about this invitation. Now, I firmly believe, this is me, I firmly believe that we have been given the greatest opportunity ever. Now, let me put a caveat there. I don't live like this. God help me. But I do firmly believe we have been given the greatest opportunity ever. And that opportunity is to become an apprentice of Christ, a disciple of Christ. At the beginning of what we call Jesus' ministry, he starts out by saying, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand or the kingdom of God is at hand. It would be like me saying, Behold, the door is right over there. What he's saying is there is an availability to the kingdom of God. See, put another way, what he's saying is that the triune God is inviting you into a life of union with him. Right? What he's saying is there is a kingdom life that God is inviting you into. Now, why am I saying this? I can't deal with this topic here, but I want to point out certain things. In John chapter 15, there is this theme of abiding in the vine and the vine in you. Right? All of that should be speaking to you about this union that God, the triune God, wants with you. Right? John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples and for everyone that will come to believe in him, through the disciples, which is all of us, when you look at the theme of what he prays through, Right In John 17, he talks about this union with God. I in them and them in me. Paul explores all through his epistles this idea of we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. So God is inviting us into this life of union with him. Another passage that might make this clear. Romans 8, right? We, Romans eight twenty eight. we all know that. And God will run everything, God works out everything for good. I can't even recall it. <laughs> right? But we know that passage, right? And he works out everything for good, for the purpose of those who love him and whatnot, right? But the very next verse is a verse we don't quote as much, right? Where, where he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, Right? God's goal for you, if you're looking for destiny, what is my purpose? God's goal for you is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Wow. When you think of what God's plan is for you, he wants you to be like his son. Union. And what we know of the son is his union with the father is impeccable. God is inviting all of us into a life of union with himself. And so the basic question then becomes, how do I actually get there? How do I do that? Right? What happens with that? And the first thing I want to say is there are two things I'm going to suggest. One is repentance. Right? Two action items for today. Repentance. Thank you. Right? So 
Martin Luther, famous for the Reformation and whatnot, right? His first thesis, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be that of repentance. This is where you might have seen that phrase, all of life is repentance. Right? This is where it comes from. And so the idea is repentance is not this one-time inaugural event. There is a continuity to it. Right? And it's a way for us to run back to God. Because we will struggle with sin. We will fall. We will make mistakes. So the first action item I want to point out here is that of repentance. And so my question to you is this. How often is repentance? Where you sit with God and you look at your life. How often do you do that? How often is that part of your interaction with God? Right? It shouldn't be once a week. Right? There should be a certain continuity, a continual sense of that interaction with God. Where what you are talking to God about is your sin pattern, your present sins, right? considering all of that. But I want to be careful. I'm not saying you should sit down there and be dejected, which is why I have the second point there. Right? Second point is this feasting on the sacrifice of Christ. Right? This feasting on the sacrificial love of Christ. If you look at Psalm 51, if you look at the themes that run through Psalm 51, right, the themes of confession, repentance, forgiveness, seeking restoration, this inward renewal, this knowing that I can't change myself. If you look at all of that, really Psalm 51 is like this cry for a Messiah. It's pointing towards Christ. It's kind of like David is longing for something more than the animal sacrifices. Right, and, and and so when we talk about an acceptable sacrifice, right? What is an acceptable sacrifice? The broken spirit, the broken and the contrite heart. Please do not forget that we know of a sacrifice that Christ, that God was very pleased with, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Right, this is a sacrifice that God was so pleased with that He turned back His wrath, the wrath that we deserved. He turned it away. For the sake of that sacrifice. To routinely feast on the sacrifice of Christ. See, understand what it means for God to give up his son. For you. Soak in what it means for God that he was pleased with this sacrifice. He was pleased to crush his son for your sake. Isaiah 53 verse 10. Understand the anguish of the son. That even in that anguish he saw the result of it and he was pleased with it. Isaiah 53, verse 11. So you matter to God. Hence that invitation of union, of a life of union with him. And yes, it is over time, progressively we grow in it. Spiritual growth can be frustratingly slow at times. But God is merciful. We have all of eternity. We'll get there. God is merciful. So no matter how much sin attacks you, no matter how much you make mistakes and you're bogged down by that, please, please remember God's goal for you, what he has predestined you for, is conformity to the image of Christ. It's a life of union with himself. Always. So with these two action items, repentance and feasting on the sacrifice of Christ, we can always confront our sins and not be crushed by them. Right? With these two actions, we're not as much... You know, beating ourselves up for past sins. No. 
We have the sacrifice of Christ. He has nailed all of that to the cross. And we can always rejoice in what he has done. And so in addition, you are free from the shame of the past because of the love of Christ. So finally, I want us to meditate on a poem, actually. Uh, It's called Love 3 by George Herbert. Um, I'm going to quickly walk through it and then give us some time to just meditate on it. Right, so let me quickly walk through it. So wherever you see love here, he's talking about God. Right. Um, And I want you to be thinking of all that we've talked about, the cry for deliverance, the weight of sin, true repentance, this invitation into a life of union with Christ. And I I believe those themes show up in this poem as well. So let me walk through it and then I'll just give us some time to think about it and do business with God. Love, or God, bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. Very typical of us, right? But quick-eyed love, quick-eyed God. Like, note, note the, how would I put it, the initiative of God. Quick-eyed love. Observing me grow slack, observing me pull back. From my first entrance in, drew nearer to me. Sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. Right, So me coming before God, I want to draw back because of my sin. And God takes the initiative to draw closer to me. And what he's asking about is, what do you need? And then I'm, we responded, a guest I answered, worthy to be here. The idea is I'm not a guest that is worthy to be here. Like if you're asking for something, what you want is a guest that is worthy to be here. But God said, but love said, you shall be here. You shall be that guest. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, and then fill it in with all other sin patterns that you know of. Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. So love, God, took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? You see, before the occasion of your birth, before you were even thought about, God knew you and again, in his, in his foreknowledge, predestined you for conformity to himself. Knowing you will sin, knowing all the sins you would engage in, he still conformed you. He still predestined you, sorry, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then I, we were responding here to truth, Lord, but I have marred them, I have marred the eyes, I have marred all that you've given me. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. Meaning, let me go where I deserve. Basically, let me go away from your presence and go hide in my shame. And know you not, says love. This is God talking like, do you not know who bore the blame? Christ. And then our typical response when, when we're given grace, when we're given something we don't deserve, is we want to pay for it. Right, we want to earn it. And so our response is, my dear, speaking to God, I will serve. Meaning, let me work for this grace you are giving me. And God responds, you must sit down, says love, says God, and taste my meat. And this is my hope. This response here, this last thing here is what I hope we do. So I did sit and eat. So I did sit and accept the invitation of life with union with God. So I did sit and embrace the sacrifice of Christ. So I did sit 
and I'm reminded that I am loved by God. And so I did sit and repent of my sins, crying for deliverance, knowing that God will always accept me. Amen.